0: So I, I do not recommend the sort of surrender to the virus to get it over with mentality, even though let's be honest, I understand the emotional logic of it. It's this effing living in isolation is awful. And the only reason I'm doing it is because I don't want to be complicit in maiming and killing other people. So it's you choose the lesser of the two evils, and the lesser of the two evils is to live like a frickin' you know, OCD introvert. For you know, It's not that anything's wrong with being an OCD introvert, it's just a hard life to live if that's not who you are.
1: Someone said to me this last week that they feel like we should have to go to a funeral every month. And I thought, man, that is not a thing I'd like to do. But what I do think that that would cause us to do is sort of to reflect on our past, sort of spend some time in our present and then see what our future would be like. And with the passing of my grandma and being able to think a lot about that, I've thought certainly about my particular past and what my past with the, the cultural hall has been. And I just want to say thank you to everyone. Uh, This episode in particular got me reminiscing because it's our second time with Sam Brown. Uh, The first time early on, a fledgling young podcaster with podcast gear in hand made his way to a hospital up to like the seventh floor. I don't know. I'm making it dramatic now, Uh, but was able to sit down and interview him initially. And and, uh, it's been a long time. Been a lot of guests through the cultural hall since then. And uh, and sometimes I th- I feel every single one of those guests, and other times I go, that was that long ago. I can't even believe that. If this is your first time to the Cultural Hall, you've found a home. For those that are lifers or converts, or you've been around a while, maybe you're a back road dweller or you're a Patreon saint. Uh, you know, you know what this is, the value that this brings, and I hope that uh, you share it with other folks uh, as I share this with you. Why I'm going to share this episode of the Cultural Hall. It's time for another episode of the Cultural Hall. It is exciting because we welcome back to the Cultural Hall after almost 300 episodes, Samuel Brown, uh, Harvard grad, uh, Dr. A book author, I, and I, it was funny to me, uh, Sam, as I was thinking about the last time we met. I came to your office at the hospital to do our original interview. That's episode 184. If people want to go back and listen in the show notes, but do you remember that time? Oh yeah, uh, we, I do.
0: You you came by with your cool little directional mic, and yeah. we were in my office. That was uh, that was some years ago, if I remember right.
1: Yeah, yeah. We uh, you you were up on the high floor and. You know, I'm just a couple years into this whole cultural whole thing, and I think you were like, well, I don't know who this guy is, but he seems nice enough. I'll give him an interview, and now here we are all these many years later. You've written another book, and and we're going to talk about some of the subject matter of that book. How have things been for the last few years?
0: Oh, you know, I think for most of us, 2020 has been a confusing and strange period Um, other than the pandemic and the associated uh, miseries. Things are going pretty well. You know, I'm I'm a, mostly a scientist, so the day job is trying to figure out how do you identify new effective treatments or preventives for people with what's called acute respiratory distress syndrome. That's a lung injury that happens when you get real sick, and then the pandemic comes, and of course, that main thing it does is is uh, cause ARDS. You know, when it gets bad, mm-hmm. uh, cause ARDS. So for those of us that are scientists and in ARDS, we've been working six or seven days a week since March. Uh, and it's, uh, boy, it sort of wears you out. But other, you know, just middle age middle age science is kind of fun. You know, you way around the track a little bit. and You're able to grow uh, other people's careers and see the younger generation making contributions and be able to run a few things and help out with some other things and, and encourage others to run some things. So it's a, you know the kids are growing up. It's yeah. other than this effing pandemic, it's yeah. uh, things have been actually kind of sweet.
1: Now, I I have to ask you in a, in sort of a weird way: is the pandemic sort of exciting? I mean, like you would never want it. You don't wish it on anybody. You you know the disease is horrible. It kills people. We need to be safe for all those things. But as a as a as a scientist, as a researcher, as someone who works in ARDS, is it just sort of a, fi- a fascinating phenomenon that excites you? If you could remove all of that other garbage that goes with it,
0: yeah, it's incredibly stimulating. It's really it calls on you to. Do your best work as quickly as you can, and I know for a lot of people, the pandemic, in addition to the fear, has been uh, boredom. But you know, for us, it's the exact opposite. We're having to work at the top of our game constantly, and, and there, is, you know, you you never wish ill on anyone. Mm-hmm. If if something bad happens and you can make it better, you you try to rise to that occasion. And I think you're right. There is a kind of there is a kind of sanctity, or even excitement that comes from knowing that you can help at a difficult time so yeah I think it's we hate it we wish it were gone we wish it had never come
2: mm-hmm.
0: and for those of us in this field uh, we're we're uh, grateful for the opportunity to serve uh, you know I feel like I feel like for some people who've uh, been able to serve in the in the military or in some of these non-governmental organizations where they're able to really, Jump in and help where things are rough.
2: Mm-hmm. I
0: think even though you wish the world were a better place, you're you're honored and, and grateful for the opportunity to try to help to make it a, a better place.
1: I, I know that in the majority of what we'll talk about today, we're going to talk about um, translation and talk about Joseph Smith. That's sort of where your book uh, goes hand in hand with each other is those two subjects. But before we get away from this, what have you? Um, what what do you think is the is the biggest takeaway that we are going to take away from now, from where we first started uh, experiencing the virus? Like, what's the biggest thing, uh, the biggest game changer, or what is a thing that you know as we as we look to having future pandemics in the future? <laughs> great, thanks, redundant, Richie. Uh, that that we uh, uh-huh. that we'll go. Oh yeah, no, that's a thing that we learned from COVID, and we just won't do again, or we'll be able to to do quicker because of what we've been through?
0: Those are great questions. And it's been so, you know, as on the side, I do history is, you know, and we we always think about 1918. We as Latter-day Saints have the 1918 with Joseph F. Smith's revelation of the spirit world that's triggered by the pandemic. And, you know, you've, you've, you kind of have looked back all those hundred years ago and thought, about how much of it was so obviously avoidable.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: A- and then you fast forward and you see that um, it's all still avoidable now, but mm-hmm. not avoid dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, that there seems to be something about the way enough human beings are constructed and their societies are constructed that um, even if you know how to save hundreds of thousands of lives, uh, you may find surprising resistance. So I, I wish that a story coming out of this pandemic were that we'd suddenly magically figured out how to persuade people to be civic-minded, team players in uh, the midst of a pandemic. But I haven't, I haven't obviously seen that happening. So I, I, worry a bit that that will not be something we have, have learned. And I wish it, I wish it were. If we, uh, we could have avoided a lot of awful, awful things if we'd been able to come together uh, as a meaningful community, looking out for the vulnerables, helping to support economically those who were thrown into economic disarray by the physical distancing, et cetera. So that's my kind of, I wish.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, what I do think are uh, major game changers are um, the messenger RNA vaccines. Messenger RNA vaccines, um, I just got mine uh Three weeks ago, my first dose of the Pfizer vaccine. And, you know, we've been working on this, not me personally, but broadly. Uh, Western scientists have been working on this, uh, not just Western scientists, actually, Glo- globally, scientists have been working on messenger RNA vaccines for a few decades, but they're finally ready for prime time. And uh, we now know that you can use these newer ways of building vaccines. To rapidly move forward. Mm-hmm. Now, if it's a totally brand new thing that's unrelated to anything we've ever seen before, it may not move as quickly. We were able to sort of have a leg up because of the SARS SARS one uh, that we'd seen, you know, 15 years ago and kind of smoldering along. But, mm-hmm. but I think messenger RNA vaccines are going to be very helpful in future in future pandemics. They're nimbler. They're easier to develop. They're easier to test. And then we're going to have to figure out how to distribute them, as I think people have heard. The Pfizer vaccine takes one cold old cold you know, yeah. cold refrigerator, negative eighty Celsius. Uh, but you know, Moderna was able to come up with one that only has to be just frozen. Uh, so messenger RNA, and then you know, honestly, wherever you fall in the in the meltdown with this current guy, uh, the the federal government, one thing it did right in the midst of some other things that were done terribly wrong was this pivot to get science um, working. And I've been privileged to be working within the, the Operation Warp Speed Therapeutics group, not mm-hmm. directly for them, but on projects that they're funding. And it's, it's so great. You know, there's the story that some people like to tell about how federal employees are like inefficient or something's Mm -hmm. wrong with them, but Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, they're so great and they're on their game. And uh, as opposed to the usual practice of science under this uh, warp speed model, if you're running a trial and you say, we've got a, we got an obstacle. We really need to get past it. You know, they take the weekend and they come up with a solution for you. And, you know, you say it's going to cost X for us to be able to accomplish Y and, We need to accomplish why. And they say, yeah, you're right. You need to accomplish why here's X Mm -hmm.
2: go. Mm -hmm.
0: And so it's just been, it's been astounding and really frankly, great. And, you know, I'm I'm no fan of this mess that this man has caused Mm -hmm. with the sedition and all this stuff. But I, you know, you gotta be, you gotta be honest and accurate warp speed has done things that have been really important. It would have been better if we'd also had CDC unfettered if we'd also been able to, manage physical distancing better but i uh, this this warp speed stuff has really been very
1: helpful i appreciate you saying that because i think a lot of people will just sort of broad brush paint a thing it's all bad it's all good it's all you know uh, it's all bias it's whatever it's all this it's nothing that and so i appreciate you know hearing hearing that you know that there are some some things that have been done along the way that have been good I'd be curious when you received the vaccine I've heard from many people uh, that it was sort of an emotional experience did you find that for you
0: yeah no it's uh i I have a high-risk family member so uh, we've been extremely fastidious for these nine months and that first sort of crack in the shell of this isolating misery that is, uh, the pandemic. I felt that I, I have not changed my behaviors at all at this point. That that will come when my vulnerable family member is uh, vaccinated. Uh, but it's just sort of knowing that there's an end in sight. That um, we're not going to have to avoid parties and contact and dinner and restaurants forever. That we're moving forward. It, it yes, it really just an emotional sense of gratitude and excitement and optimism when I got uh, when I got my vaccine.
1: You know when so I actually uh, contracted the virus and had it. Uh, it was miserable. I don't recommend it. two thumbs down. Um, it was scary. I got it fairly early on when not a lot of it was known. Um, sort of in the time when you know, if people went to the hospital they would go to the hospital to die. And so s- some maybe even half, of the, the the terror and trauma from the virus was not knowing co- sort of the mental piece of, okay, I feel terrible today. Oh, I woke up, you know, the next day and now I feel worse is today, the day that I'm going to go to the hospital is this, you know, what, what is this uh, like? What, what, you know, what am I experiencing and and all the not knowing and not having people to, to, to talk to uh, that have said, Oh, you know what? You'll be fine. I've gone through it. Even if all they're, all they're doing is well-wishing, there still weren't those people that I was able to lean on and be like, oh, this is going to be OK. I will be OK. I'll make my way out. But it, but it, it has been completely different after um, having recovered from the virus, the way that I felt around things. It's it, it has been a journey to say the least. And And I know from some people they've said, you know, I wish I just would get it. So that I can can have those antibodies or be sort of immune from it on the other side. And, and I just don't recommend that. It was an experience I would n- not wish on the worst of enemies.
0: And our guess is that natural immunity starts to wane, meaning starts to get less strong after just three months. So yeah. the idea of let me just get myself infected, get it over with. The problem is it's not going to give you durable immunity. Uh, the evidence we have right now is the vaccines are going to be superior to that. And crucially, the problem all along with COVID is that in the process, you're going to accidentally infect somebody who's going to be seriously injured or killed by it. Mm -hmm. For for most people under the age of 60, all along, this has been a threat that they'll be complicit in wounding or killing another person. It's not really a threat that they themselves will go. Now, it's worth remembering that, yes, we've seen plenty of 25-year-olds and 30-year-olds killed and maimed by it. But statistically, if you're under the age of 60 and you're, you're not uh, overweight and you don't have any medical problems, it, it's much more likely that you'll maim or kill another person by accident mm-hmm. than that you yourself will be harmed. So I, I do not recommend the sort of surrender to the virus to get it over with mentality even though let's be honest i understand the emotional logic of it it's this effing living in isolation is awful and the only reason i'm doing it is because i don't want to be complicit in maiming and killing other people so it's you choose the lesser of the two evils and the lesser of the two evils is to live like a freaking ocd introvert for it's not that anything's wrong with being an OCD introvert. It's just a hard life to live if that's not who you are. So yeah.
1: it, it's different. So if, that's what we do. Yeah. It's different if you Go find ahead. yourself actually in those things, but if you're placing yourself in those things, it's like the extrovert, even just the extrovert trying to be the introvert for so long. I I was like, I think I'm, I think I'm depressed. I think yeah. I am not. And, and it, and it, and it, and it was, I, re, you know, I remember at a point being like, this is depression, not, you know, a clinical depression, but I am mentally unwell because of how I've been, you know, taking care of myself. It is, it is a gnarly thing. And then a whole different subject that we aren't going to even talk about here, but this idea of the, the long haulers, I, you know, this, it's been months, months since I've had the virus and still I'm like, why am I wheezing right now? I would never wheeze right now. Why is it, you know, why do I feel so tired all of a sudden? Why? And, and maybe those things are completely related to having, uh gone through you know a run with the virus and maybe they're not but it certainly is a mind where i go oh is this is this a part is it coming back am i you know where was something seriously damaged within the time that my body was infected and while my body was fighting it off it just it, yeah it it is all in all just just a pandemic just awful
0: just yeah, terrible uh, it it stinks
1: yeah it
2: legitimately stinks. <laughs>
1: we're both agreed good i'm glad i could i could coerce you into saying that it stinks i i didn't know at the beginning of this i thought maybe you were pro pandemic but now i know for sure let's take a break let's come back and in the second and third block we're going to talk about uh samuel brown's book it's called joseph smith's translation the words and worlds of early mormonism we'll come back and do that in the second and third block
3: of the cultural hall Hey everyone, this is Kurt Francom from the Leading Saints podcast. If you'll allow me to slide into the back row of the Culture Hall and let you know of an upcoming virtual conference that you gotta check out. In an effort to bring more thoughtful dialogue to the topic of mental health in the Latter-day Saint context, the team over at Leading Saints has put together the Mentally Healthy Saints Virtual Summit. We have interviewed 20-plus individuals with expertise or real-life experience related to so many mental health topics, including anxiety, depression, eating disorders, ADHD, and even scrupulosity, which is Religious Obsessive Compulsive Disorder. We will discuss all these topics as they relate to the Latter-day Saint faith experience and how we can all come together to better minister to those who struggle with mental health. It's free to attend virtually, and you gotta join us. For more details on what topics will be covered and to register for free, text the word LEAD to 474747 or simply visit leadingsaints.org slash health. Again, text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash health
1: here in the second block of the cultural hall don't forget if you want to become a patreon saint of the cultural hall you can do so just go to patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall it's where you're able to get uh, all of the videos the zoom calls is where how we do it Uh, you can see those videos of of these various recordings that we do of our episodes Uh, you also get to be with other patreon saints and have nerdy chat about various things that we talk about in the episode that aren't even the thrust of the episode but you have to be a patreon saint to do that it's patreon.com forward Slash the Cultural Hall. Sam, this Joseph Smith translation, the words and worlds of early Mormonism—that that is a big, long title. I'm going to need you to break it down for me.
0: Yeah, thanks. No, I, <laughs> I tried. You no, know, it's a big. The thing you struggle with is a is a scientist and as a humanist, you know, somebody writing history and stuff is how do you create words that are true to the beauty and vastness of the actual world, but are not so true to the vastness that they're difficult to even get inside a brain. So that's the kind of thing that you're worrying through. And particularly that's true when you're coming on to big topics. You know, if you're just doing a traditional like political history, like who yelled at whom and who had, you know, who got elected to what, who got elected to what, when, mm-hmm. Whatever you just you tell the politics and yay and you know this side won. But when but when you're grappling with thinkers like Joseph Smith and the early saints, who are really trying to figure out what's the structure of the world, like what what makes this all tick, what what are we as entities, and what does it mean to interact with other people, to love them, to aspire to be with them across boundaries of time and space then you really, you really gotta work hard to, to be true to what they were thinking and still accessible to an audience that may be strangers to them. So basically, if you were to try to boil it down, I'm asking what it means that the word translation refers to two things in the early restoration. One is what happens to Enix city. It's a transformation of human beings that makes them capable of living together forever as a community and of being in the presence of God, of the heavenly parents. So there's translation as a kind of fundamental changing of human beings to allow a new kind of community to exist. That's one sense of translation. Mm -hmm. And then the other sense of translation is this notion of moving stories from one language group to another. And we've tended in recent years to have a lot, to spend a lot of time around the kind of mechanics of how does one story or idea get from one language group to another? What are the, what are the markers of that process? How how similar is the process that Joseph Smith used to the process that uh, a modernist linguistics professor might use? And, and we've forgotten the richness of that whole other side of translation that's about transforming human beings to enable a new kind of community. And so what I argue is that if we go back to Joseph Smith's translation efforts, the ones that are about words, texts, scriptures, but we allow ourselves to be open to what those concepts meant to the early saints, specifically that sense of the transformation of human beings to allow a new form of community, then we're going to see them in a totally different light. And similarly, if we allow our thinking about what's going on when Joseph Smith is dictating scripture, creating scripture, if we allow ourselves some insights into that process, we may have a much better sense about the big question of what kind of people are we hoping to become what kind of beings will we one day be and what kind of communities are possible for us so the words is those texts and the world is that opening up of expanded forms of community and they're all tied up in that word translation
1: So give me an idea, because on a lot of um, forums, online Facebook groups or other social media things, I know that a lot of people will take issue with the translation of the Book of Mormon in that we think that Joseph Smith would be looking at the plates and translating them, whereas we know that in a lot of instances, it's marked that, you know, that he was looking into the stones inside of a hat and that the scriptures were maybe there or in some cases not even nearby as he, and I'm air quoting, translated them. How does this play into what you're saying?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And notice that even the way that question gets asked, and I agree it's a common way of asking that question, puts front and center the mere linguistic sense of translation and pushes off the broader sense of translation that has to do with our whole lives rather than just the words on the page. And I think that's a leftover from this kind of move that happened for a lot of Latter-day Saints in the 20th century where the the focus became on making sure that what we then called Mormonism um was made sense in the modern world. There there was this there was this kind of excitement after uh, World War II in in the United States and it, it was a part of the excitement in I think in the churches uh, in the geographical core that said that uh, this brave new world of american technological prominence and the you know the growing economy that this is something we've got to be a part of in an important way. And so there was this kind of move I I think to make the restoration fit into that story better. And when you do that The advantage to it is that people who are living at that time will feel like, oh, yeah, the restoration makes total sense to me. It looks just like America in 1980. That's the advantage to it. The disadvantage to it is that you become less and less able to see the restoration as it actually was and as it actually can be. So that notion that in order for Joseph Smith to translate in a sacred and true way He had to be doing what a professor of linguistics would be doing.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: That notion is itself an artificial one. It's by no means required. It's not, uh, it's certainly not true to the data, right? Joseph Smith never claimed that he was a linguistics professor. Sure. He claimed that he was a prophet, seer, and revelator. Mm -hmm. So Smith, Smith never makes that claim for himself. The early Latter-day Saints, sometimes saw him as better than a professor like he could show the professors their blind spots Hmm. but they still didn't see him as a professor so it's not it's not true to the early restoration and then i think it unnecessarily cuts out a key attribute of scripture if if the if we agree with uh, some of the 20th century saints who helped to sort of build some of these stories that we've inherited that all there is to the Book of Mormon is that it just so happened that like in a Disney Freaky Friday film, Joseph (laughs) Smith was suddenly a professor of linguistics, right?
2: Mm -hmm, mm
0: -hmm. Instead of being the teenager who's suddenly her mom, Joseph Smith was suddenly a professor of linguistics. So if we think that that's what happened, then we cut out the whole phase of scripture being brought to life again in a new community. With new sets of questions and new capacity to come into relation with those who've come before, because the problem with the professor of linguistics model, which in some respects is sort of like the Google Translate model, right? It just says that you know it's like a machine. You 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 have a photocopy of Reformed Egyptian, and you you know you scan it, and out comes English. And there's no openness for prophets, uh, seers and revelators, for prophetic translators to be a crack in the case that separates the generations. There's no capacity for there to be God speaking again, rather than just uh, finding an old recording of when God spoke before. So it cuts out this possibility of the prophet having a role in what comes out, that it's it's not simply a machine taking one text in one language and giving the same text in the other language. It's a new text that is created. And that's a true and natural and appropriate part of the generation of scripture. So I'm not at all bothered by the notion that even though early on, Joseph Smith did try to sort of puzzle things through. And the the evidence is pretty clear historically that when he first gets the plates, He's trying to figure out sort of like if he were a professor of linguistics, you know, the kind of academic model, Mm -hmm. he tries to make it work and he sort of gets nowhere, right? They can't figure it out academically. They take it to the prominent academics and the academics are like, hell hell if I know, you know, (laughs) and then they go back and they're like, oh, you know, actually Isaiah and Isaiah as it's interpreted through Nephi, make it pretty clear that the academic approach is not going to work. So we got to be open to other alternatives. And that's where you see, I think, Joseph Smith becoming much more open to uh, spiritual and revelatory modes of translation. And those spiritual and revelatory modes don't require the same kinds of, you know, fingers on plates or eyes staring at glyphs that you would otherwise see.
1: It, it's a transformation from um, the literal or, as you say, sort of the academic to the mystical. And, and that's using your own word in the description of this book, this mystical uh, power. And, and is it that that maybe we have more of an uncomfortability with that, it, that requires more faith? Or when we hear the term mystics or mystical, it, it's not always shared in a, in a positive light within the church. So maybe we don't trust it as much.
0: I, you know, I, Richie, you're you're very perceptive. That's the that's the thing that's been trickiest for me because everybody who knows me knows that I'm a natively skeptical scientist. That's just how my mind works. Mm-hmm. That now my mind is not all there is to me. Uh, there's heart and soul and the whole spectrum. But if you were to just say, I meant to say brain actually. If yeah. <laughs> if, if you were just say, how does Sam's brain work? Sam's brain works in a pretty traditional skeptical scientific mode. And so, and you know, professionally, when I do doc, I do doctor about 20% of my professional life. And so when I am doctoring, I'm in an intensive care unit, things are really intense, people have experienced a lot. And I do encounter a reasonable number of people who do not share my basically skeptical or scientific orientation of the world. And you know, when they start telling me about their essential oils or their crystals or their whatever's you know, my natural response is to roll my eyes and hope that we can move on to another topic of conversation Mm -hmm. quickly. So I, I actually share with a lot of people this nervousness around what commonly gets called mysticism, Mm -hmm. but then I sort of catch myself at it. Well, it's not that I catch myself. I let Joseph Smith and the early saints catch me in my disdain for certain modes of being. And, um, And there's a delicate dance. You can take it way too far. You can take mysticism off to just nutter butter, 1970s communes, licking LSD, psychedelic frogs, and you'll have wasted the gift of life. Mm -hmm. So you can take mysticism vastly too far. You can take pseudo mysticism, which I think a lot of this like essential oils kind of stuff is really just a pseudo mysticism. Mm -hmm. That's, that's, uh, that's a blind end. Um, but you can also lock yourself away from the possibility of a beauty you cannot put into words. And, and I think it's worth stepping back. Mystic comes from Greek and it comes from the same uh, source as mystery. And mystery was a strain of religious uh, experience and community around the time of Christ. It was before Christ and after him, but it was present around the time of Christ. In fact. Some people think Paul writes about it a little bit in the Paul in Paul's letters in the New Testament, and it's based on the name of a participant in this form of religious observance, who was a musta or a mista, and that's someone who remains silent. And the notion behind mystery or mysticism is that there will be aspects of life that escape our ability to reduce them to words that are beyond even our best applications of language. And I think for me, Joseph Smith and the early saints open up that kind of a model of mysticism. It's not that even though I'm, you know, I, I, I spent a lot of time in the woods uh, during the pandemic as a way to try to maintain my sanity, um, (laughs)
1: I don't mean to laugh, and, but I just I, I feel everyone sort of in their own woods, whatever that is. It's just like, yeah, listen, whatever it takes. It is whatever yeah. it takes at this point.
0: Yeah, I got a mountain bike in uh, May and I call it my pandemic Prozac. <laughs> I just I get on that thing and I ride it up in the woods. It, but so, I, you know, up in the woods, I am. You know, when I was a 16-year-old, 17-year-old atheist, my first inkling that I was probably going to prove to be wrong was when I was camping in the Uintas with my beloved male friends, uh, and I felt this sense of divine vastness Mm -hmm. that I could not put into words, even though I tried to write and wrote really bad poetry. (laughs) Uh, That was my first sort of contact with that. And I'm not a full-time mystic. I'm not a full-time monk or contemplative. But I'm, I'm carving out in my heart and in my brain a little more space for experiences that cannot be reduced to words. And so that's what I think I'm getting at with this notion of mysticism. Again, I'm not trying to create a following. I'm not a mystic. I'm not a guru. I'm trying to hear the voices of the early restoration guide me to a patience with and a, and a kind of gentle celebration of Moments of divine grace that are beyond words, and I think Joseph Smith's model translation opens that up. And if we force it to be this word for word kind of stuff, we asphyxiate it. Hmm. Uh, we we don't allow it its capacity to grow. Uh, but but you're right to have called me out. You know when when mystics read my book, they like think I'm a kindred spirit, and hmm. I'm like, well, I, I sure love you, and I and I love the divine light that sparkles inside you. And I don't want to hear about you know your pilgrimage to the crystal mines. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I think yeah you know that we got to be patient with these possibilities. So it's I I am probably the strangest person to be advocating an awareness of mysticism in the Latter Day Saint restoration because I'm not myself intrinsically any kind of a mystic. But so- I think there's a counterbalancing. We sort of We've sort of shut it down so aggressively that we're losing that connection with stuff that we cannot manipulate, explain, control or put into words.
1: On a very base level, what I hear uh, a benefit of looking at the the restoration, the early times of Joseph Smith and specifically with like the New Testament and also with the Book of Mormon, when we talk about translation, the being able to look at it in this lens, certainly for some who have issue that it is not a uh an academic translation this at least o- uh, opens up another venue of this is how it could be true and how someone could remain in the faith aside from that very base this is what would benefit from <coughs> from from looking at the you know at this time through this lens what else are there particular examples or um like like uh lessons that that you have been taught as far as your your faith journey that allow you to either see things differently or interact with other people differently that would be a, fan, a benefit to looking at it like this? Or is this just sort of a, have you ever kind of thought that it could be this, here's a book about it?
0: That's a great question, Richie. And I and I think you're really on to something with this question around um, what ways of understanding and embracing and cherishing translation are available beyond the old dichotomy Mm -hmm. and we sort of inherited from a generation or so back the notion that there really is a dichotomy that it's either a traditional academic translation that would look just like if google translate did it or it's a fiction or a fraud it's like it's not true right uh and and you know, when I was a young atheist raised in and around the church, I thought that this is clearly just fraudulent crap. Um, when I was converted to uh, belief in God and then subsequently to the restoration, I went through a phase reading Hugh Nibley, whom I loved and was very helpful to me as I was trying to decide whether to leave the MTC or, or continue on to my mission. Had a little just crisis moment of what on earth have I signed up for cuz I just become a believer a year before oh wow um and so i yeah, i really enjoyed Nibley and you know that chiasma stuff that sort of jack welch sort of riffs on old old nibbly uh, ideas and and then on the backside i found myself deeply believing deeply believing not not like uh not like you know Putting on airs because I think it's good for my kids, or, right? You know, right. It's a to, good
1: community. It's great morals yeah. and principles. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, and and you know, it is great morals and principles. Sure. It is. Uh, but but no, I was. It wasn't that kind of sort of liberal Protestant idea about Mormonism uh, that was that was in my soul. Uh, but when I looked, I thought, well, what I'm seeing is that the Nibley model is is incomplete. That it's starting to flesh out a little bit of the body of uh, the religion and of the experience of translation, but it's not really capturing the spirit of it. And I worry that just focusing on the body of religion and translation and not understanding the openness of its spirit could be quite limiting. And so even though the book, this book is an academic book. I'm working with Faith Matters. When this pandemic calms down, I'll get back to it. I'm working with Faith Matters on a book that's more for practicing Latter-day Saints. It's not academic. It's not trying to talk to people outside the faith at all um, about translation. So this book, the fundamental question was trying to understand how, trying to understand the structures of thought in early 19th century America and and how the early Latter-day Saints could, Shed some light onto some of the questions that were in in flux at that time. So the book starts as an academic thing, but as I as I moved along and wrote the academic thing, you know, you 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 ponder periodically. You know, you see new ideas, you think things through, you read new books, and you wonder not just how does the scholarship operate, you know, for the book, but how does it affect me? And as I thought about how it's affected me, I it I feel like I learned from the early Latter-day Saints, Joseph Smith and Zina and Eliza and Wild Bill Phelps periodically, you know, these the, the early Saints kind of trying to describe the Restoration to us. I felt like they opened up this third way. Hmm. And it's a third way that maintains the actual truth of these translations. These are not pious fictions. These are not frauds. These are not hoaxes. These are not things that teach good moral principles but have no substance. They are really scripture. And simultaneously, there's a lot more to them than these literal physical attributes that Hugh Nibley and his heirs were working so hard on. So so for me as a practicing and believing Latter-day Saint, I I, I hoped, even though that's not why I wrote this academic book, I hoped that the book could actually show them that there are rigorous carefully thought through approaches that are true to the documents themselves and true to the nature of the world that describe a third way, that say that it's entirely possible for these translations to not be what a professor would have done with them and to still be true, deeply true, to reflect actual connection with actual people who had come before, to uh, reflect and carry to us actual stories that actually happened uh, and to open up the full breadth of their meaning. So uh, my hope would be now speaking not as the academic wrote the academic book, but as a practicing Latter-day Saint looking at this book that, that came out of the academic work, I would really be uh, pleased with the book if for Latter-day Saints struggling to, to imagine a third way, not feeling like Nibley and his heirs have solved the problem for them. Uh, but also not quite wanting to slot into that either liberal Protestant or postmodern sort of idea that pious fiction is good enough, that this would provide for them a, a rigorous, carefully argued, extensively researched vision of a third way to maintain an interesting and living and vital belief.
1: I want to take a, a another break. And when we come back in the third block, you mentioned um within the translation piece that there's two parts of translation. Uh, at first you referenced, you know, the city of Enoch and the and these people who are able to be translated. We haven't talked about that at all. I want to bring that back around full circle as we come into the third block of the cultural hall. <laughs>
0: When you need creative, affordable design,
4: let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit Lennondesign.com. Hey, this is Dan, the Laptop Man from PC Laptops. Friends, I know a lot of you guys and girls are working from home. So here's some tips for making sure your computer is ready for working at home, because if your computer fails, it's going to be really hard to get it fixed because of dwindling supply in parts. But we have parts right now, and we have a limited supply of new computers available for you. Make sure your computer is healthy and virus and malware-free. Hackers are trying to infect people and stealing their information during these challenging times. We'll scan the health of your computer for viruses and malware, plus scan your hard drive, memory, and components to make sure you don't have any failing parts. You want to make sure you have strong antivirus and malware protection software as well. Just get into any PC laptops and we'll check your hardware and your software and scan your computer for viruses for absolutely free. Just go to PCLaptops.com. At PC Laptops, we've been serving you for over 28 years, and we've got your back during these times in need. We're all in this together. So just go to PCLaptops.com, and we'll get you taken care of.
1: Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, uh, visiting with uh, Sam Brown. It's Samuel, really, but I, I just want to call you Sam. So even if you hate that, Sam, I'm sorry. I'm going to persist
0: no 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 worries (laughs) sam
1: is fine uh now let let's get into that idea of the the first kind of translation that you're talking about we don't uh as members of the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints talk about translation uh very often certainly in this sense the idea that an entire city was taken up to live with god or any of the nephites that we believe were translated right those of the of the uh the nephite apostles or or other folks along the way we just sort of We 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 sort of mark it and go yeah that they were translated and don't move on or or, and absolutely move on and don't consider that we as a as a people as believers could be translated. So what is the crossroads between what you find study and know of translation in this sense from the early times to today?
0: Yeah, it's a good it's a good comment that you've made that we you know it's it's sort of a standing joke right the. I, I just I just did this stupid thing because otherwise I'd have been translated, right. you know. Or yeah. or we we laugh when a when a really lovely human being messes up. We say, well, you know, you you, you messed up just so we could keep you with you rather than with us rather than being translated. Uh, but we don't seem to take that notion seriously. And and I think that um, if we were to all go around uh, talking about how we're going to be translated bodily to heaven because we're so good. Yeah, you can imagine that that would be a hot mess uh, pretty quickly. So I, I don't think that they thought that, I don't think the early saints thought that the specific thing that happened to Enoch City would happen identically with uh, them. Some did, some did. Uh, but what I think they were getting at, especially as, as you look at how Scripture functions and at how the temple functions... I think what they were getting at was this possibility of human transformation through scripture becoming real or alive in them that would open up these possibilities of additional community. And it may be that the equivalent of translation happens after you die it, you go through sort of the standard way. But it, I think it's that there are these rare exemplary individuals or that one large community that go through this flashy version of it that gives us some insight into the more conventional or accustomed way the rest of us go through life. Because fundamentally, the project here is to love and be loved and to mature, right? If you were to boil down atonement, plan of salvation, it's, we are called, we are placed on earth to love, to be loved, and to mature. And that's the story. And maturing in this gospel sense is a kind of transformation. There is a kind of maturity that comes by accident, by having seen a lot of things happen. And so you can comment, oh, you know, that happened a while ago. There's a maturity that comes. Uh, Montaigne used to laugh about the, the piety of old men too weak to get into trouble Uh, by drinking or fornicating. And he, he talks about how that's not a real kind of piety. They're just too weak to get into trouble anymore. So it's not, I think that this gospel sense of translation is not the maturation by default, by accident, by inertia. It's about opening the self to love and be loved and to be transformed in the process of it. And it's also simultaneously an opening of the scope. We tend to think now that loving and being loved is you know 20 years ago it was like your intimate family and friends now i guess it's your social media followers plus mm-hmm. whoever is left in your intimate uh uh intimate circles but but the the point of scripture and the point of scriptural translation is opening us up to meaningful relationships with those who have gone before and you know when i was growing up uh and then uh, going on a mission, I would hear and then myself participated when I became a believer in the notion that when Nephi says that we need to liken the scripture to ourselves,
2: mm-hmm. that
0: that was saying that, well, we ought to just be pious, right? You ought to, you know, you read the scriptures and they say, be a good human being. Well, you ought to be a good human being. And, and if something happens to Moroni, well, then that ought to be an object lesson to you. And I've come to think that's actually not really True, I think what Nephi is calling us to do is to be open to entering into relationships with Moroni or Suraya and Lehi, and it's a little weird, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a little weird to say entering into a relationship with with that person who's like long dead. But but on the other hand, that's the genius of the restoration is saying, well, yeah, that you know, the spirit of Elijah. It's not just about making sure that all the punch cards get punched in the right way through the. Uh, temple rituals. It's also about this possibility that we can be open to these others and be influenced by them. And and I love listening to my wife, who was raised by her grandmother. And uh, you know, her grandma died shortly. Raised by her grandma and her mom. I don't mean to to not mention her her mother's important role. But uh, you know, her grandma died shortly after we got married in our middle twenties. And uh, hearing Kate talk about the ongoing awareness of uh bell her, her grandmother and of other women who had come before is is along the lines that i'm talking about and again this i'm naturally a kind of skeptical not very spiritual guy so mm-hmm. it takes a little bit more effort but one of my great grandmothers is zina diantha and i and i do periodically very yeah, let's be honest minimally i'm not a particularly spiritual guy mm-hmm by nature. But I feel occasionally the sense of yearning to be true to Zaina's example and um, and to have this kind of sense of connection to her. That one of the reasons I'm learning, here, here's a clear way to, to say it. Sorry, I'm a little post-call. And, oh,
2: you're mumbling. fine.
1: You're fine.
0: Uh, clear way to say it. Do you read the scripture stories because they tell you how to be a better person? Or do you read the scripture stories to meet these other people? to be open to them. And I think that's the model that Joseph Smith and this notion of translation as transformation is opening up to us in scripture. And then the big revelation to me, and here I just mean it in the simple, you know, kind of academic sense of, wow, I had no idea until I laid out these documents in this order. The temple, the restoration temple, particularly as it comes into full fruition in the 1840s, is the merger of the two senses of translation because in the temple, human beings are bodily entering into scripture.
2: Hmm.
0: I'm very aware of the of the respect with which we hold the the actual mechanics of the endowment, and I won't violate any of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but w- we have clear message from church leadership that it's okay to acknowledge that the temple is structured in the context of our first parents in Garden of Eden and creation, and it just it, it just struck me as I was trying to figure out how to wrap up the book. Wait a minute. Joseph Smith's been working translation as language as moving ideas from one language group to another. He's been working the notion of human transformation. And then in the temple, we become fully human. And we become fully human as we bring ourselves into the community of the saints in the temple. And we do so by enacting in our very bodies these scriptural stories and it really uh, shifted my understanding of the role of the temple and its and its implications and significance around specifically we're called to participate in this cosmic drama along with everyone else who's come before and those who will come after and that being open to that communication it has a mystical in the sense of can't quite put it into words but it makes me fuller of divine grace. And it also has very practical implications. You know, as we worry to death about what's happening with climate and what's happening with pollution, part of coming into that transforming translated community with those who will come after is acknowledging those debts we owe to the people who will inherit the world from us. Uh, But it's not just that simple like, you know, oh, you gotta do better, you gotta hew to a particular political ideology it's a reframing of the relationship that we as human beings bear to each other and to the world that is the is the gracious stage on which these lives take place
1: if you hear me trying to close my mouth from being agape i'm just listening to what you're saying i'm like what this is this is not only new um a different way of looking at it like it's it it is illustrated in words and a beautiful um uh, it just, it, it sounds amazing the way that you have depicted it. And for those that have really been struggling with either one way or another and have have made decisions as such saying, well, it's got to be this or this and I can't, I can't align myself with that. So it's got to be the other way. And then they find themselves out like this is a, this is a, a, a beautiful way of, of worship, of community, of maturing, to use your words, of, you know, becoming like gods, of, of, of life. And wow, I I had never considered about 93% of what you just said.
0: Th- thanks, Richie. You know, th- this is an academic book I wrote it because I wanted to use my best academic thinking on this question. But as it wrapped up, I I sort of sat with some of what I'd discovered and 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 found that it was affecting my thinking. Mm-hmm. That that there are there's so much awesome stuff in the restoration and the community that it engenders. That's so much more than just, oh, you know, it teaches people how to do public speaking and keeps <laughs> them from developing alcoholism. Like it's, and, and 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 the other thing to acknowledge just in on this practical mode that you've pushed us toward, I think appropriately, having this uh, richness open to us provides the context in which in deep and devout loyalty not as like not as rabble rousing and not a not in any kind of narcissistic way but but that this sort of model of of deep truth and abiding community and, and openness allows us to to find our way through some of the some of the stuff we wish the community of the saints including ourselves had done better that that you know this this model which uh, i have found very enlivening of my faith and a rekindling of my commitment to both gospel and institutional church it 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 has this kind of openness to finding our way uh finding our way you know part of being in community with people in addition to loving and being loved is hurting and being hurt mm-hmm. that is part of it that mm. is And if we are in true community, we have a capacity to deeply understand, to forgive and to move forward with those who have come before. And, you know, sometimes in these current sort of social fights or culture wars, whatever you want to call them, there's this sense that we're telling the dead that they have to be just so or we're going to excommunicate them from our community. Uh, That's been this kind of one approach. And then a kind of combative alternative approach is to say that it's impossible that they did anything uh, that might need forgiving or that might require some repenting within our community. Uh, But the reality is that they are as much a part of our community as we are. So we can't just say, you look stupid on Twitter today. You need to fix that. Hmm. But, But also, we are in relation with them. And there are missteps that they have made, and there are missteps that we make. And being open to that ongoing relation of finding our way together, I think, provides an opportunity to, to again, find a a third way. You know, you think about the restriction of temple and priesthood. You know, we don't even know quite how to talk about it, but that that thing that said the priesthood of men and women uh, is not allowed if you're Black in some way, you know, that that's something they really did. And that's something that we justly grieve. And it's something that we do need to continue to think through and get better. But to dismiss them as a bunch of racists is to excommunicate them from our community as well. So there, there's there's, there got to be a way, and I think there is a way, for us to find that middle path between the, the hunger to excommunicate the dead from our midst and the denial that the dead could ever have done anything that might require a process of repentance and forgiveness.
1: Mm. Is is that the next book, Sam? Are we going there? It... Oh,
0: <laughs> I, you know, it's, you talked about how, how uh, tough this pandemic has been on mental health. Uh, I, people get irritated with me because uh, I've never had writer's block. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> You know, I'm a scientist and doctor and I write these books and they're like pissed off at me because I can do it. And it just it's not there's no moral superiority here. It's just I, I've never had writer's block. So it's easy to write. During the pandemic, I have had aching uh, writer's block. Mm. Uh, I'm just so utterly spent that uh, it's hard to do anything except science. Yeah. And I know that's weird because like a lot of people find science hard, but science is actually pretty easy once you learn how to do it and if your brain sort of slides that direction. Mm-hmm. But like important moral and religious uh, thinking, that's way harder. Yeah. And that takes, I think, way more emotional reserve. And I just, it's been months since I've been able to write anything but science. And I've, I've been mourning that along with all the other stuff to mourn in this pandemic. So uh, honestly, what I'm hoping is we get we get to the summer and things calm down as everybody gets vaccinated. And then I take a deep breath. I wander off with my family to the woods for a week. We camp and then I come back and then I figure out what I'm going to be riding next. But Mm. I don't I've never had this before. It's a hollowness. some of its grief, some of its exhaustion. But I've never had rider's block before. But holy cow, do I have it now?
1: I, I hope that you'll uh, stay close, close with us and, and know that you can always check in and tell us about uh, what you're studying and what you're writing about. Sam, as you might remember, or you might not uh, from those episodes so many hundreds of ago, uh, we ask three questions of everyone who steps into the cultural hall. And I'll ask those of you right now. The first question is, is, do you have a calling, sir? And if so, what is it?
0: My current calling is gospel doctrine teacher. My wife and I co-teach. We do it by Zoom, but uh, gospel doctrine.
1: If you could pick a calling for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick?
0: You know, honestly, my preference is just to be a gospel doctor teacher. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm perfectly happy with that.
1: Uh, The the final question, and ask you to interpret it however you will, uh, but the question remains, what is your favorite part of your faith? Wow.
0: I mean, honestly, right now, it's my wife. Uh, and and our kids and i know that sounds so neo-victorian but uh and i don't intend it to but there's something about the concreteness of our working together as latter-day saints that uh, they they are the best part of of my experience of religion and and i don't mean that in the sense of like Oh, you know, my family, you know, I don't worry about the institutional church. It's that the the institutional church really comes to life and and my family comes to life in these interactions with them. So I think right now, I got such tender feelings right now in the midst of this pandemic and a family member who's uh, at risk. I think it's them.
1: Sam Brown, thank you for being here with us. Uh, People can pick up your book. There is a link in the show notes for wherever uh, we would recommend that people would purchase it. Uh, Other things that they can find out about you, just find you online. You have a website somewhere we can lead folks.
0: Yeah, SamuelBrown.net. With the pandemic, I haven't updated it at all. but (laughs) That at least has old books I've published and stuff.
1: Uh, And you can obviously, too, go back and listen to that original episode with Sam. We hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you were not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, Brother Brent, Ken Williams, and BigMike'sProducts.com will be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall.
3: Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat. On the back row, we really gotta go on the Cultural Hall show.